everybody to Sippin' and Shippin'. I'm your host, Brian Weinstein. We'll be kicking it here every other Friday, quenching your thirst for an insider's take to enhance your customer experience. So grab your drink of choice, kick back, it's Sippin' and Shippin' time. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Sippin' and Shippin'. I'm your host, Brian Weinstein, and with me, as always, because somebody has to run a serious side, never, part of the program, <laughs> Caitlin Postal. <laughs> Hey, hey, Brian. Hey, I don't know how I always draw the short straw, but I'm happy to be here. The short straw? What do you mean? Yeah. Keep you in check, Brian. You're you're always you, sidekick, you right? Keep me in check. You are not. <laughs> you are not serious person. So I'm I'm sure anybody who knows you personally is like, what is he talking about? That's right. All right, we have very special guest today uh, from Passport Shipping, Alex Yancher. How are you, Alex? I'm good, thank you. Welcome to welcome to Sippin' and Shippin'. It's uh, you know, for us, we this has been a passion project. Uh, we're excited to have uh, another year of doing this uh, in 2022. So we're really excited for that. Um, so tell us a little bit about you and your background, and uh, where where are you based? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, thank you for having me. Um, excited to be on Sippin' and Shippin'. I love saying that. <laughs> uh, I'm based in San Francisco, California. Um, and uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about myself, about how I got started with Passport, and then happy to tell your audience all about the wonderful world of cross-border e-commerce and international shipping. Let's go. Yes. All right. <laughs> all right. So, um, yes, my name is Alex Yancher. Uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Passport Shipping. We handle international parcel shipping for direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies and on merchants that ship with uh, uh, or that sell on marketplaces. Um, before starting Passport, I actually used to run a personal shopping service okay. that helped people abroad buy products from the U.S. Hmm. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and I ran operations for that company. We were headquartered in uh, Delaware, and I don't okay. mean like C Corp Delaware thing. I mean like we had a warehouse in Delaware. Right, right, nice. <laughs> and the reason we had it in Delaware is, for those who don't know, it's one of the only states that is sales tax free. So people okay. would buy things from us, and then we would use our own credit cards and PayPal account to go on a merchant, it could be, you know, Etsy or a direct-to-consumer store, mm -hmm. and we would buy it, and we wouldn't have to pay sales tax because everything would be shipping to our warehouse in Delaware. Um, yeah, so um, got to save people some money that way, and then yep. we would figure out, and then it was my job. I was the, um, the head of operations, the COO of that company, and I had to figure out how to ship products really of any shape or size, sometimes you got surfboards. We weren't really in control of what people wanted to buy. It was a personal shopping service after all. Yep. Um, and it was my job to figure out how to ship those things all over the world. What could possibly go wrong? Right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> an easy task, an and, easy task. And, and so uh, I have to ask you the question. I know this is going to walk right into the shameless plug, which we always try to avoid. But what gap did you see in the market that you were like, hmm, I need to start something here? Yeah, no, I mean, um, really, like, that, that was the reason I started Passport is that there was this um, situation that I found myself in of having to solve for um, the various duties and taxes that different countries around the world charge, all the regulatory compliance that comes into international shipping, um, customer support becomes a different 
question and equation than it is for domestic because even if we did everything right it would still take you know five to ten business days and consumers around the world they've been trained to expect two to three days you know so they they get antsy they start asking questions and you need a different engagement model for customer support than you have for um for domestic shipments um guys don't even get me started on returns that's a whole other beast of a problem maybe, maybe we'll dive into that on this on this podcast but that's a whole other thing to solve and yeah. what i re- what i realized in running ops for for the personal shopping service is that all of these things, the duties and the taxes, the regulatory compliance, the customer support, the returns, um, it's all intertwined around the actual physical logistics and yep. you can't take one away from the other. And they all should be working under the hood by the same company, handling it all in one seamless way and making it easy for the customer. And I really just didn't see that in the industry. So decided to leave and start my own international shipping company. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah, <laughs> what could right. possibly go wrong? Yes. <laughs> Nice. I thought you were going to say the only problem was too many people were ordering surfboards, but sounds like that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't the issue you had to tackle. So for our audience, for those who may not know, uh, who don't have the experience that you do, Alex, can you just give us a quick high-level understanding of the difference uh, between DDP and DDU? Let's start there. It's a great place to start. Um, it's it's a question that we hear all the time uh, at Passport, and it, it is um, an important decision to make upfront for any merchant. So, uh, let me break it down. Let's let's take a let's take a step back. So, every country has its own set of rules, regulations, um, and duties and taxes for importing. Sure. And these duties and taxes and other charges, they can either be paid by the sender, so the brand that's based in the U.S or the recipient of the shipment. You know, Joe Smith, who's in uh, Toronto, or um, Cheryl Crow, who's in uh, in London. <laughs> Cheryl Crow, shout out. Okay. Name yeah, name name name. <laughs> um, A frequent and, listener, by the way. <laughs> and uh, either one of those parties can be uh, required to pay those, uh, those necessary duties and taxes. Now, when the sender pays all of the duties and taxes up front, that's called DDP, which okay. stands for deliveries, duties paid. So it's mm-hmm. delivered, duties paid, right? Makes sense. Yep. Thank you for, uh, for spelling out that acronym, acronym yeah. by the way. Yeah. 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 yeah, of course. Of course. Uh, there's a lot of acronyms in, uh, in this industry. So please. I know uh, it. Let me know. I know it. Um, when the recipient pays the duties and taxes upon delivery, that's called DDU, which is delivered duties unpaid. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. A lot um, of thought went into that one, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Duties paid, duties unpaid. Yeah. So, so yeah. And, and, and as you're seeing brands evolve, is is one methodology more popular than the other? Great question. So let's talk about what um, our recommendation is and how we got to our recommendation. Um, let's start with DDU. Yep. And I think historically that has been the most popular method and the one that the majority of uh, merchants and and shippers would be a part of Um, but as you'll learn in a second here it's actually changing it's actually becoming ddp so let's but let's talk through both of these so let's start with ddu so sending shipments ddu it may appear cheaper at checkout because remember deliver duties unpaid so yep. you don't need to charge the duties and the taxes in the shopping cart. So the shopping cart looks lower, just the absolute number looks lower because you're not charging the duties and taxes. Yet. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. The power of yet. 
Yeah, the power of yet. Um, however, the customer is going to be in for a rude surprise when the package actually gets to the destination country, and they get this really annoying note on their door that says you have to come into the post office and not only pay the duties and taxes, which is already sometimes, like I said, a rude surprise, but you also have to charge. A, you also have to pay a clearance fee that the post office is going to charge you for holding your package. And it's, you know, it's admin work for them to right. send you the note, have you come in, wait in line. And they charge, you know, in, in, um, in Canada, uh, I think it's nine Canadian dollars. So additional, Canadian just, dollars, just which to is handle. Actually, yeah. Which actually I would say eclipses the duty and tax charge. Um, so adds up to a lot. Wow. So that, I mean, that's, that's really a rude awakening for, for, for the recipient to have to not only pay for it, um, and, but they're also then getting hit with, with basically surcharges from, from their local post office. Yeah, it sucks. Yeah. Okay. And yes. <laughs> it, it's, it's really common for customers to actually be unaware that duties were even owed in the first place when they were right. placing the order. And, um, a lot of brands, they try to communicate that and they don't want to be, um, uh, you know, hiding things like that from their customers, but, and they'll put it into an FAQ, but who checks FAQs right. before you want to buy something? You see, right. <laughs> okay, fine. You really do? I really do. I do. Maybe because I know folks do this. And one time I heard, is it true, Alex, that in some cases, in some countries, the postman, like the person, if they get your post person, I should say, if they get to your door, they might even put their hand out and you're supposed to pay them on the spot. Is that true? That is true. That is that true. That is wild. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I heard that like four years ago. Did and that's when I started memo? checking the epic. I don't imagine that happening. <laughs> Unreal. They, they have, you know, the square reader and they uh, and they have your package and they're gonna right. hold it hostage until you give them the credit card and then they'll right. and then they'll swipe it and take it. So um it's it's really it's really not the best experience, and that's not the kind of experience that um uh, direct-to-consumer brands are trying to have with their customers. They're trying right. to create trust. They're trying to create a pleasant experience. They want to create a, a higher lifetime value than that one single purchase that they're doing up front. And that's the whole spirit of, I would say, the direct-to-consumer industry. Yeah. Uh, is to build a relationship with, uh, it, with the client. It's interesting because it, it's very similar. It, it's, it has, it sounds like it has a similar uh, evolution to, and we had talked about this before about returns, right? It used to be when e-commerce was really starting to, to, you know, grow in its infancy stages. The idea was make it as difficult as you could to return a product. This way, the customer you discourage the customer. But then what happened was. Hey, I've got to build trust with my customer. My customer needs to think this is as easy as can be. So I want to make it as simple for them to return a product. So it sounds like this is kind of going that same, or it's kind of gone that same evolution path. Exactly, Brian. It's like the uh, the saying, "Penny wise, pound foolish." Yeah. Right. Yep. Um, so let's talk about GDP. Uh, so GDP shipments that are a little bit more expensive upfront. Um, because the duties and the taxes are charged in the cart. But the experience is really a great one because there are no surprises at the door. It's all cleared already when it gets to the country. So it just travels straight to the customer's door and there's no delays. There's no extra fees or payments. Um, and, you know, one other thing that I forgot to mention about the DBU thing is when you get this kind of surprise, a lot of customers actually just abandon the shipment. Right. So you get a double whammy. Not only do you upset your customer 
you lose the sale, but now you have to pay for the return shipment back to the U.S. So really, it, it just ends up being uh, a bad experience for everybody involved. That's why we really uh, at Passport recommend that uh, merchants move to a, a, a DDP um, method of shipping internationally. And and that's if it even makes it back, right? Because I know there's a lot of countries where things that get refused by the by the uh, the consignee don't actually make its way back to the U.S. Is that correct? Totally. Yeah. 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 That reverse logistics, and we'll talk about that when we talk about returns. But um, that reverse logistics, it's it's tricky. Right. Right. Now, are do you recommend that the customer? I'm sorry, the brand is is transparent at the checkout. Because to your point, they're going to see a, 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 a cart with a higher fee, but do they line item that number and say, hey, here's what your duties and taxes are, so this is why you're paying a little bit more, or do they just kind of bury it into the shipping cost? Yeah, it's a good question, Brian. You know, there's two schools of thought, and um, there are some cases where one makes sense versus the other, but, uh, uh, but some decide to just bake it into the shipping and okay. some even bake it into the price of the good so that mm -hmm. they can have a really strong marketing message around free shipping, free duties and taxes. Um, and that's possible when the number isn't too big. Um, and, you know, maybe the item is cheap, so it's below the de minimis. So um, duties aren't owed or maybe if it's so cheap, taxes aren't even owed. So it's possible to just, you know, bake everything into the price of the good. Um, and in some instances, it actually makes sense to just break it out as a separate line item. So right. we've seen brands have success with both methods. It just depends on what the, the, the marketing plan is going to be around that, um, uh, uh, that cart. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. And I'm, I'm thinking in terms of, I know there's the whole de minimis factor in the UK, I believe, for example, the shipping fees and all of that are included. So you, you need to be careful, right? If you're, if you're trying to bury some of that in the shipping fees, it could actually push you above the de minimis fees. Like that's, that's true as well, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Talk a little bit about about myths around shipping internationally. Like, you know, we, what what are some of the uh, the pitfalls or or things that brands should look out for, not to get caught into, or what's some of the pluses that they did that they don't know about and they should really expand upon? Yeah, I got some good ones for you, Brian. There's a lot of myths in the in the world of international shipping. So uh, the first one that I think it's important for everybody to know is that um, there's a myth. The the postman will have a square device. He will collect your money. That is true. That's, that's, that's the first one. We already cleared it. We got it. Okay, go ahead. Sorry, Alex. Go ahead. That's, that's a reality. That's a, that's no a longer a myth. A harsh one at that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's do a little bit of myth busting here. Uh, so number one myth is that if it can be sold in the U.S., it can be sold anywhere. No you know, way. Can... <laughs> What'd you say, Caitlin? No way. It can't. Um, you know, we think in the U.S., you know, we have the FDA and we have all these regulatory agencies and that we're really strict. But actually, we have probably one of the most relaxed regulatory markets. Really? Uh, for example, uh, the FDA only bans 11 chemicals uh, in the use of cosmetics, while Canada prohibits or restricts 500 and wow. the EU over 2,000. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I have a good example. Uh, so one example here in the U.S., we have uh, uh, the Crest White Strips. We were looking into this at one point. Yep. 
So they cannot be sold in the way in which they're made in the U.S. They cannot be sold in Europe because the concentration of the hydrogen peroxide exceeds the allowable levels in the EU. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I always hear that our, our FDA is so strict that it takes so long to get drugs through the process of getting passed. It's interesting to hear that, you know, the, the, the reverse is, is true on some of these products. Grass is always greener. <laughs> yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Myth number two. I can just say everything costs a dollar, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of people um, think that it's just easy to declare the value of a shipment at a dollar or one cent and not have to pay any duties and taxes. Um, but really, this is false. Um, everything except for documents, which, you know, there's still a lot of documents being shipped internationally. Everything has a value for custom purposes. Even if it's a sample or a replacement, there are specific rules around what you can claim on the customs value. In marking it as zero or a cent or a dollar, it's likely going to get flagged. They're not dummies. They don't want to lose money for their government at the customs uh, offices around the world. Um, and we've actually seen brands uh, receive huge bills from customers uh, from customs not from customers from customs for undervaluing products wow how often are they checking that declared value how often it's hard for me to answer that to be honest um we we try to uh ensure everybody's in compliance at passport and you know and uh, we work very closely with our customers and 3pls to make sure that there's high level of data integrity so we almost never run into this kind of issue sure but when we hear like scuttlebutt from the industry or people come come to us say we just had a huge shipment stuck or whatever you know i, I don't think it takes that long for customs to figure it out maybe you'll get away with it for a few months but um they're 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 keen on um, collecting uh, collecting revenue, right? Like, what, what was his name? Um, Al Capone, he went to jail for tax evasion, you know? It's one of those right. types of things where that's the biggest crime yeah. in, in, uh, in any government is tax evasion. <laughs> yes, yes. To give them their money. Often yes. enough to strongly discourage it, yep. Yeah, Understood. exactly, exactly. Not, not worth messing around with, to be honest. All right, I got a couple more myths. Go ahead. I'm yeah. I'm listening because right. that 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 was so. I remember that from so years and years ago. I was around businesses that did a lot of uh, production, and they used to have to basically, especially in apparel, they used to have to send samples, and they would have to be defaced in some way, cut, slit, whatever. This way, if customs got them, they knew it was a sample, and it wasn't going to be something that was going to be brought here and sold. So I, that that one I that one I knew, and I, I knew that trick clearly. I was hanging out with the. Uh, the uh, the mischievous type, but yes. No way. <laughs> it's a it's a really interesting it's a really interesting thing that you're mentioning, Brian. I I know I can't say, of course, I'm not going to name any names here, but there was a company that I was aware of that the way they would avoid these super high customs fees into Latin American countries for iPhones is that they would crack the screen. So they buy a new iPhone, open it up, crack the screen, and then mm -hmm. ship it and avoid. It would be cheaper for them to have it fixed in brazil than it right. was to pay the taxes <laughs> on the wow. ship to brazil yeah it's genius though right and, and <laughs> did they have, i i assume they eventually got shut down uh, i have or, no idea where they're at right now but i was i would assume so yeah right right yeah um okay the next one the next one is is a little bit more practical i would say and um it's for everybody's number one country 
outside of the U.S., everybody's number one country is Canada. It's mm -hmm. our uh, neighbor to the north, um, over 30 million people. It's about the size of Cal uh, Can uh, California. I keep saying Canada. It's about the size of California. It's a really big market for everybody. So I want to I want to specifically hone in on Canada here about a a myth that I hear a lot, and the myth is that if I'm shipping to Canada, I should register in Canada, and I should have my packages have uh, French labeling because that's what they require in Canada. But that's actually false. The traditional advice was for merchants to register as what's called an NRI, a non-resident importer. But this advice was really only for B2B shipments. Okay. And with the tax de minimis, as part of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada free trade agreement rising to 40 Canadian dollars for taxes and 150 for duties, it's actually much more beneficial to ship directly to consumers with the Canadian consumer as the importer of record and never registering. Just staying an American company, shipping it to a Canadian customer and having that Canadian customer act essentially as the um, importer of record. And this is all done under the hood. The Canadian never needs to actually fill out any forms or really do anything. This is just sort of like a de facto structure. Um, but it actually hurts you as a brand if you do a lot of D2C to register as a uh, non-resident importer. There's really no reason for you to do it. And you're also not obligated as a non-Canadian uh, uh, business with no retail presence, you are not obligated to change your labeling whatsoever. Mm. Um, so that's an important myth to dispel for um, potential um, uh, interested parties in, in shipping to Canada. Yeah, that is interesting uh, because we we have a lot of a lot of people that are either looking to they they want to set up a three PL. They're they're mostly U.S. based. They want to set up a three PL in, in in Canada or ship in and they're concerned about shipping in. So that's that's an interesting myth. Uh, yeah. So yeah, thank you for that. Okay, cool. I have one last one and it's not quite a myth, but it's one that I feel like is important to, to raise anyways. Um, and it's if I'm shipping something to a consumer for their personal use, mm -hmm. the rules don't apply. And this is a half truth, it's a half myth. So um, uh, there is some truth to this. Uh, B2C shipments have, lifts, have less scrutiny than B2B shipments. Right. When I say B2B, it's like you know Amazon Canada, for example, or a retailer in, in Europe wants to carry your product and you need to ship product over to that retailer. That mm -hmm. shipment has more scrutiny than Sheryl Crow in London you know, <laughs> <Right>. buying, <laughs> buying some makeup. It has less scrutiny. A lot of countries haven't quite ca uh, caught up with this new world of direct-to-consumer cross-border shipping, and they haven't even written laws to address it. But some countries have, and the ones uh, that have, um, they they mostly let uh, direct-to-consumer shipments slide, if even if this um, B2B shipment would have required some special documentation or relabeling or something like that. So, for example. Canada actually does have a personal use importation clause that exempts things like vitamins and supplements from mm -hmm. getting what is normally required in Canada. It's called a natural health products license. In Canada, it does not require that if you're just importing it for personal use. Okay. Um, 
there's some caveats, like as long as you're not planning on reselling it, personal use, right. um, you know, you're shipping it directly to a customer, like a home address, you're not shipping it to like a, a warehouse. Um, and, and none of the ingredients in that product are on a prohibited list. But beyond all those things, there's really very little requirements if it's for personal use. Interesting. Interesting. So, and, and uh, right. So they've got themselves covered in case someone's ordering and then trying to resell. So they're, they're trying to get in under, okay, interesting. So, so let's, let's jump topics and let, let's talk about everybody's favorite subject, which is returns, international returns, returns within the U S are, are, are complicated enough with the processes and things that have to go. And, you know, I know, I know in the U.S. we love to buy, you know, multiple items, uh, uh, multiple sizes of the same item and do all that other stuff. So there's always a lot of returns coming and going and within the domestic U.S. Tell us a little bit about the the how you're handling international returns. Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I'll, I'll even broaden the scope of this question to incorporate companies that have a business model of everything being returned. So think 23andMe, you mm -hmm. send something, uh, they send something to you, you have always have to send something back right. or rental companies, or there's this new um, uh, concept of try now, uh, buy later, right? Yep. Where you can receive right. it, try it on and not pay for it yet. So all of these um, permutations of e-commerce and then just, you know, run of the mill returns and didn't fit or the wrong color, I got the wrong thing, you know, you want to send it back. Um, it is complicated with um, with international for two for two primary reasons, and I'll break it and I'll break down the question into these two pieces. Uh, the first piece is the reverse logistics. How in the world are you going to get this back from the Philippines? Like, whoa, you know that's right. that's crazy, right? It's hard for somebody in the U.S. to ship to the Philippines, not to mention somebody from the Philippines to figure out how to ship to the U.S. You know, right. so that's 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 problem number one is the physical return logistics. The second problem is how are you going to recoup the duties and taxes? Remember we talked about the tax man wants, uh, wants his money, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, <laughs> he sure does. Once, what, that's once they collect it, it's pretty hard to, to get them to give it back, but there are ways. And, and at the end of the day, they want to be fair and they don't want to take what's not rightfully theirs. And they do recognize this concept of somebody paid for it. You have to pay taxes on it. But once it gets returned back to the U.S., you know, and the money is refunded, surely the duties and taxes should be refunded as well. But they want proof. That's the thing. It's not that they're going to just take your word for it. You can't just write them a letter. You got to submit documentation and things like that. So it, it gets pretty complicated. Um, so let me dive into both those things just a little bit, and then you you two can ask questions to make sure I, I covered it in a um, in an ad adequate way for yeah. for uh, the listeners Alex, here. I, I will say that, that that Caitlin and I are both from Jersey, so we, so, so we we have people that'll collect if, if if anybody's having any trouble collecting. <laughs> All right, you'll have to share some names. <laughs> I can't give you names. I can't give you names. Um, okay, so uh, on the reverse logistics, there's there's two ways of doing it. One way is to help that person, that customer in Canada or Philippines was the example that I used to help them print a uh, domestic, call it uh, label from their local post 
you know, at the end of the day, like um, a grandma can send can send their grandkids um, cookies in another country, and they just go to the local post office, call it Canada Post or or Australia Post or Philippine Post, and yeah, buy a label for uh, for a, a destination that's you know in the U.S. and they could do the same exact thing with the returns. And we work with a variety of of platforms, um, you know, such as Loop. Uh, mm-hmm. that can let you print a passport uh, return label, you know, on our rate card, pre-negotiated rates, make it make it really, really easy. So we could we can streamline that if we're talking about like onesies, twosies. If it's a situation like the um, uh, um, 23andMe or it's a brand that um, has a high return rate, again, that's sometimes it's part of, it's just part of their business model. Uh, to let people try on different things and send it back. And there's a lot of volume to a country like, say, Canada. There's a more optimal way of doing it, and it's allowing people that re- that want to return the product in that country to send it to a central warehouse in that country to consolidate all of those returns and then send one big consolidated shipment back to the U.S., Mm-hmm. Okay. And we do that as well for all the major markets like Canada, UK, Australia, uh, Europe. And we provide a first mile label. So somebody in Canada, in Toronto, we'll just send it locally to a warehouse in Toronto. And then all those returns will be consolidated and then we'll arrange the shipment back to the U.S. Makes sense? It, yeah. it does. And, and and so I'm going to ask this question. I'm, I'm sure. you know, when... I hear of our customers making shipments that are getting refused or returns and they're going to certain countries. There's a whole slew of them out there um, that they're they're known for being problematic for getting product back. My I, I, honestly, my assumption was it was it was probably a little bit of a loose knit situation in the in the supply chain there. There's probably some degree of corruption. Packages just go, you know, fall off the truck, so to speak. Is, is it more the case that it's just the fundamentals of making sure that the, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed to get the packages back and not as much of a, of a corruption, things falling off the truck scenario? You know, I would say that shipping to um, the major markets, especially the English-speaking markets like Canada, uh, UK, Australia, and, and most of Western Europe, um, it's it's pretty rare for okay. things to quote unquote fall off the truck or um, for things to not have the right documentation. Every carrier, us included, of course, will set you up with something that you need. It does get a little bit hairy for, um, let's say, Brazil or Chile. Uh, you know, some of these countries um, either. It is a last mile network that is a little bit more corrupted and theft is much more common and it's uh, much more likely that something is uh, is going to quote unquote fall off the truck. Um, but in addition to that, a lot of those countries also require the recipient to provide something like their equivalent of a driver's license right. to, to get the package cleared. And there could be some miscommunication between, you know, what happens when the product gets into that country. So we try to bridge that gap and ask that person in Brazil for their, um, it's called like their national ID card, you know, so we get Mm -hmm. their, we get their number and we fill in that missing information to make sure that it goes straight there. But of course, 
um, whenever there's extra steps and it requires different stakeholders, um, there could be things lost in translation and things will make it back to the U.S. because yep. it just weren't able to be delivered. Yep. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I mean, look, and that's a question, you know, I, I, I'm obviously sensitive to it um, and I, I want to make sure that we're not disparaging anybody in particular, but I know it exists to a degree. I just wasn't sure how much of the complexity of getting product back uh, was coming from documentation versus versus that that kind of corruption. So that's a it's a great uh, it was a great explanation. And I think you know there's ways to do it, but then again the trade off is are you going to make it more complicated um, for the for the consumer? Totally good. Um, anything else that we should know? Is there any other changes coming for the EU or UK that we are you know I I know everybody's finally settling in after some major changes this this past year. Anything else coming down the pike now for, for either location? Yeah, yeah. Maybe let's do a quick refresh on what happened in UK and EU. This just yeah. happened in 2021. Um, so both markets, they removed the value added tax, the VAT, yeah. uh, from the de minimis in 2021. UK changed it in the beginning of the year. EU changed it in the middle of the year. Uh, June 30th, 2021 is when... Um, that came about. And that basically means that all shipments are assessed for uh, the, the VAT in that country, irrespective of the price. It used to be that anything under 16 British pounds is VAT free and anything under 22 euros is Europe VAT free, but that's no longer the case. Even if it costs a dollar, it's still, you have to pay VAT on that dollar. Mm -hmm. So that's one big change that happened. The second big change that happened as part of um, uh, their restructuring is they moved the responsibility for paying that VAT to the merchant. So now the merchant versus like the shipping company and the broker. So now the merchant in the UK has to have a VAT number with the UK um, uh, HMRC, Her Majesty's Royal, you know what, I don't actually remember what that stands for, but it's basically their IRS in yeah. the UK, you have to have a VAT number, uh, and in the U and in the EU, it's the same story. Um, you have to have a IOSS registration. That's their version of again, like uh, I, our IR, uh, IRS, and you have to pay on a quarterly basis this VAT that you collect from customers. Um, this is a this is a um, a product that we we you know we immediately saw this pain, and we um, uh, brought to. Uh, market a solution called the seller of record service that basically allows brands to use our that number. So um, just to make it really easy for brands, because who wants to register with like UK IRS? You know, it's such right. a pain. Um, so we we made that really easy. But that's one big change that that happened in the world very recently. Um, the other big change, it hasn't happened yet. It's coming down the pike for uh, for Canada. And it mostly impacts B2B shipments, but I would say that this is gonna probably be a foreshadowing of what's gonna happen in the D2C world. But I would say a lot of merchants, you know, that that um, that you all work with um, and that we work with, they're, you know, they're starting to sell, they're starting to um, become multi-channel, you know, and they're, they're really interested in both a D2C channel, but also, uh, selling through, you know, either a marketplace or some retailer. So B2B is going to become a bigger and bigger part of their business. So it's important for people to be aware that there's a big change coming to Canada. Um, 
it's called the the change is called um, the CARM set of changes. Uh, CARM stands for Canada Border Services Agency Assessment and Revenue Management. Oh, it's is a mouthful. It? No. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this new program for Canadian imports, it's going to require importers to pay import duties directly to the Canadian government. So notice it's very similar to UK and EU. So instead of having the broker and the shipping company pay at the border, they're putting the onus on the merchant to have a registration with the Canadian government mm -hmm. and pay them directly. Um, so, you know, this, this program, um, it's been launched in stages um, and it was mostly for really big expensive shipments, but it's starting to become for, for lower priced, smaller uh, uh, smaller shipments. And again, it, we expect this to actually start to roll down and to hit direct to consumer in the next few years anyways. Wow, wow. And, and is that really just to kind of take the onus off of the brokers because the brokers were getting stuck with large bills and then sticking the government and then there was, a, there was sort of an in-between and this is just to make the relationship more direct? Yeah, that's a part of it, Brian. I think it's it's a lot of um, just data integrity and being able mm -hmm. to go to the source of um, the declaration. Like, why are you declaring this amount? Why are you declaring it as this um, HS code or this country of origin? Like, all of these kind of things. It, I think the governments have felt they're playing a little bit of broken telephone going through the brokers yeah. and they want to make sure that they start having these direct relationships with the merchants so that they can have more, you know, a cleaner picture of what's coming into their country. Yep. No, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yep. Well, listen, I have to tell you, I, I and, and Caitlin and I have talked about this a lot. One of my favorite parts about doing this podcast is the amount of information that we learn um because we have great subject matter experts like yourself come on and, and explain to us a, an area that we don't know much about um that was amazing he he, he, yeah. he he described the uk and uh eu situation in 90 seconds i think we did two episodes <laughs> and my head was still spinning <laughs> fantastic i was like wow okay yeah, yeah. Uh, that's awesome um and and so we really appreciate uh alex yatcher for coming on today uh, from Passport Shipping. Uh, if you're not already set up in that market, please, please check him out. Uh, and you can find him on LinkedIn. You can find his company as Passport Shipping. Really appreciate you having you coming on today. Yeah, Caitlin, Brian, thank you so much for having me. Great questions. Happy to be here. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Caitlin, you want to take us out? Sure. Thank you again, Alex. Thank you, Brian. Make sure you check us out at sippinandshipping.com on Spotify, Anchor, or whatever uh, platform that you like to listen to your podcast on, guys. And we'll see you soon. All right. Peace out, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.